All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles or navigate on our devices to Jeremiah chapter 39. Jeremiah 39, we're gonna look at all uh, the chapter, verses one through 18, the entire chapter, I should say. Trying to think of what else could go wrong. If I could lose a filling, um, you never know. I could say something stupid, but that wouldn't be unusual. Now, your iPad's, now my iPad's charged up, yeah. And I have a backup hidden. Uh, anyway, Jeremiah 39. Quit goofing around. The topic we're gonna find there is this. Two men, Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech, are singled out by God for special treatment in Babylon. The title of our message, Two Men and a Babylon. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, the situation in Jerusalem, uh, very different from your point of view than it was from uh, Babylon's point of view. And I pray that we would plug into that, Lord, understand that today so that we could have a worldview, a perspective, and an understanding that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. A biblical worldview, Lord, on what, it, what constitutes victory and what constitutes defeat. Many of us have come in here today, Lord, I'm sure feeling defeated. And from one point of view, we are defeated. Yet your word declares we are always, in every situation, more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Help us to see that today, to understand it, and to experience it, Lord, in the midst of our trials and tribulations. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And all those who agreed said, amen. See if you recognize this classic bit of movie dialogue. But that don't matter either, you know. Because I was thinking it really don't matter if I lose this fight. Really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. If I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing. I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. I just, I just spit all over my thing, man. It's going to drive me crazy, but I can't rub it off. So anyway, who won that first fight between Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed? Well, Rocky Balboa lost that fight to Apollo Creed, at least technically. But because he went the distance and was still standing, he considered himself victorious, and so did we. It's good to have a strange sense of what makes you victorious. You're gonna need it if you're a Christian. God's concept of victory can be very Rocky-esque. Case in point, after a brutal 30-month siege, Jerusalem falls into the hands of the Babylonians. The princes of Babylon assemble in great pomp in the gates of the city. Jerusalem's Jewish governor, Zedekiah, is captured. His sons are executed in front of him and then his eyes are gouged out. The chief citizens are rounded up, they're shackled and deported to Babylon. In the aftermath of Israel's defeat and Babylon's seeming victory, God said something that's very strange. It's in the very last verse of the chapter, verse 18, where we read, for I will surely deliver you 
and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. Now these words we'll see are addressed to Ebed-Melech. He's the Ethiopian who had saved Jeremiah from the dungeon in chapter 38. The phrase that arrests our attention is, your life shall be as a prize to you. It means that he wouldn't die at the hands of the invaders, but it means something much more than that as well. The ESV version of the Bible translates it, you shall have your life as a prize of war. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, as well as the Amplified Version, translates it, you will keep your life like the spoils of war. Now, I described the scene inside Jerusalem to you. Who would you say was the victor to whom belonged the spoils? Wouldn't you say it was the Babylonians? If it's true that to the victor goes the spoils, then God thought Ebed-Melech was victorious. It's a very strange sense of what constitutes victory, as I said, Rocky-esque. What about us? The world in which we find ourselves has been described over the centuries by generations of Christians as Babylon. There is most definitely a spiritual warfare all around us in which the devil and his followers seem to be victorious while believers are suffering. With Babylon all around us, with the devil currently crowned as the god of this world, we're going to be defeated if we'd rather be Apollo Creed than Rocky Balboa. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your victory is not in the material spoils of the kingdoms of this world, but number two, your victory is in the spiritual spoils in the kingdom of the Lord. Let's take a look in the first 10 verses at our, uh, where our victory is not, I should say. As we read these opening verses, I want to ask yourself a question. In this chapter, would you be, rather be one of these Babylonian princes or would you rather be Ebed-Melech? Let's start in verse one. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the 10th month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the 11th year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Reckoning by the Jewish calendar, this works out to a siege that lasted 30 months, almost three full years. Famine, disease, and pestilence had already taken their toll on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The sword would now come over the wall and through the gates to take an even greater toll. In verse three, then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat at the middle gate. Nergal Sherezer, Samgar Nebo, Shar Shechem, Rab Saris, Nergal Sarazar, Rab Mog, with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. These would be great names for dogs. <laughs> these are great dog names. So sometimes I point out, you know, boy and girl names. These are great pit bull names, actually, yeah. <laughs> what's, your, what's your dog's name? Rab Mag. Yeah, I bet it is. Now, Gates were the place in ancient cities where the leaders would sit to govern the people. When you sat in the gates, you were recognized as ruling the city. These princes of Babylon were declaring victory and they were doing it with pomp and pride. So it was, verse four, when Zedekiah the king of Judah and all the men of war saw them, that they fled and they went out of the city by night by way of the king's garden, by the gate between the two walls, and he went out by way of the plain. 
But the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. To seal their victory, kings would capture and humiliate the conquered monarch. The Babylonians left no doubt who had won and who had lost. Verse eight, and the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive to Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. Line upon line, this narrative is designed to show you the complete victory of the Babylonians. Verse 10, but Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. How very Robin Hood of them to give the poor land and such. But it's actually a very good political strategy. Uh, They took away uh, all of the people with means. They took their land away, obviously. And the poor people who had nothing before, the slaves and the poor, gave them their lands. Because really, Babylon, you see, they didn't really even want to conquer Jerusalem. They just wanted tribute from Jerusalem. They just wanted to rule over Jerusalem. Uh, They weren't excited about a 30-month siege where they had to supply their army and, you know, have casualties of their own. But since the Jews wouldn't surrender, they had no choice. And so now that they had won their victory, they established a, a peace with the poor people and said, hey, this is now your vineyard. And of course, they would pay tribute to Babylon, which is all they really wanted from the beginning. And if you're a poor slave and you never had anything to begin with, you'd happily pay tribute to Babylon because you, know, you had nothing before and now you had something. And so it's a very shrewd political strategy. In every way possible, you see that Babylon was victorious over Judah. At least they were from a purely material point of view. But spiritually speaking, we know something else was going on. God had raised up Babylon as a tool in order to discipline his unrepentant people. From that point of view, this wasn't a victory for Nebuchadnezzar. His involvement was incidental to a deeper purpose of God. We need always to bear in mind that God who has begun a good work in us will continue to conform us into the image of his son and our savior, Jesus Christ. That is a work that is always going on no matter what else is going on. Since we are in the world, currently ruled by the God of this world, we can expect Babylon to seem victorious, yet all the while we know God is overruling for our good and his glory. Think of it this way. There was one moment in time in human history that seemed to be the greatest triumph for the devil. His moment of absolute victory over God when he accomplished what he had been trying to do for centuries. It was at the cross when Jesus Christ was crucified and died. From the beginning of human history, Satan had tried to stop Jesus from coming by murdering. 
Now we're told in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, that Cain uh, slew his brother Abel, and in the New Testament it says that he was of that wicked one when he did that. And so the devil was involved when Cain rose up and killed Abel. And there's some thought among scholars that perhaps Adam and Eve thought that Abel was the promised Messiah. You know, you and I have the progressive, complete revelation of the word of God, Old and New Testaments. Adam and Eve, people in the Old Testament, they had very little idea what was really going on. They had only what God had told them up to that point. He had told them that Eve was gonna have some sort of offspring that would save the world. And when Abel was born, she made some comment like, behold the man. And so she may have thought that he was the savior. Satan may have thought so too, at any rate, He was involved as Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. Fast forward to the time of Israel's captivity by Egypt and the Pharaoh ordering all the male children to be killed by the midwives. Another attempt to murder uh, the coming of the Messiah. Fast forward into New Testament times, the Magi come and they're looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod says, let me know if you find him. And they don't, but he still orders the murder of all the children in that area trying to kill Jesus. And then finally, when Jesus was on the earth, Satan turned his efforts towards murdering him. Satan possessed Judas. He filled the Jewish leaders with hatred. He pressured Rome to cooperate until the sinless son of God was tortured and dying on the cross. Psalm 22, which describes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, indicates that demons were there surrounding the cross, tormenting the Lord and claiming their victory. One Roman centurion at the foot of the cross summed up this feeling when he said, truly this was the Son of God, speaking of Jesus in the past tense as if all hope for humanity had just been lost, as if the devil had just killed Every hope that humanity had had won the ultimate victory over God. Was the cross Satan's finest moment? Was it his great victory finally? Well, quite the opposite. It was there that God resolved the problem of sin and separation from his creation once and for all. It was there that Jesus became the savior of all men, especially those who believe. It was by being lifted up on the cross that the Lord is able to draw all men to himself and offer them salvation. Jesus went the distance on the cross saying it is finished He was victorious, and we are victorious along with him. But it also puts us on notice that our victories against the devil in everyday Babylon, many of them are gonna be similar in that we must take up the cross, we must die to ourselves, trust and obey God. Victory is in going the distance, or we would say in enduring to the end. I guess the point of this opening section is that victory from God's point of view can be very, very different than from the world's point of view, but it is the only correct point of view. Victory is in the spiritual spoils in the kingdom of the Lord. We'll learn that now in verses 11 through 18. Let the Babylonian princes sit proudly in the gates as if they had won this victory. We turn our attention to those who had received the true spoils of the Babylonian conquest, Jeremiah and especially Ebed-Melech. Verse 11, 
Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, take him and look after him and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent Nebuchadnezzar, Rabsaris, Negal Sherazar, Rabmog, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. And they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Jedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. Now we're gonna see in chapter 40, Lord willing, that initially Jeremiah was shackled and carried off, but during processing as a prisoner, he was recognized and set free. Jeremiah had been telling the Jews to defect to Babylon, and if they did, they would be spared. Nebuchadnezzar had heard of him through those defectors, and we'd also factor in that God was working upon Nebuchadnezzar's heart to show favor towards Jeremiah. If you've been through all or most of our studies thus far in Jeremiah, you know that his entire life is a case study in what constitutes real victory or spiritual victory. Put in almost anywhere in just about any chapter of this book up until now, and it looks like Jeremiah is being defeated while his enemies are victorious. He's in stocks, he's in a dungeon, he's in a cistern several times. No one's listening to him, he's being beaten. But you know in your heart, in your spirit, that victory, real victory, is with him because he is God's prophet, he's speaking God's word, he is trusting and obeying God. The problem lies in that it is easier to see Jeremiah's spiritual victory than it is to see our own. For one thing, we see the end of his life and ministry and we don't see our own. We see, for example, him here in this chapter finally vindicated as Jerusalem falls into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar just as Jeremiah had prophesied for decades. Up until chapter 39, if you're not If you're not coming from a spiritual approach and you don't know what's going to happen, Jeremiah seems completely defeated. It even gets to the point where we saw a a, a while back the Babylonian army retreats for a while because they're having trouble with the Egyptians and it looks like everything that uh, Jeremiah had ever said is is false. And so put in anywhere in the book up to that point and you'd have to say from that perspective, Jeremiah, you're a loser. You're completely defeated. And then all of a sudden, as Emerald Lagazi would say, bam! <laughs> Chapter 39. Babylon comes over the wall, through the wall, killing kings and princes and giving land to peasants, setting up shop in the gates, doing whatever they feel like doing, and all of a sudden, you see who the real victor was. It was Jeremiah who knew all along that it's better to trust and obey God Our own lives are far more challenging in that we are asked to trust God to bring us to chapter 39. You could be in chapter five right now. Some of you are in chapter 21. Maybe some of us are in chapter 38. There are trials and tragedies that we've been through or maybe that you've been through where you've come to a chapter 39 where there was defeat after defeat after defeat or whatever it would be, persecution, ridicule, humiliation, and then God vindicated you. 
but you know that's gonna happen again and again and again, and a lot of times you're going to be pre-chapter 39, as it were. God says you're more than a conqueror, no matter where you are in the book of your life. We must therefore always remember what victory, real victory looks like. It always looks like the cross. It looks like dying to self and continuing to obey God no matter what. Verse 15, meanwhile, the word of the Lord had come to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison saying, go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword. Your life shall be as spoils of war, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. Now we met Ebed-Melech when Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern and left to sink and die. Ebed-Melech risked his own life to save Jeremiah's. We saw that he was a foreigner, a slave, an emasculated harem keeper. He's anonymous in that Ebed-Melech is a title. It's not a name. It simply means the king's servant. There would be maybe hundreds of Ebed-Melechs in the king's service. This anonymous foreigner, a slave who had most likely been mutilated to serve in the harem, He's the one person in this account of the fall of Jerusalem who is described as having any prize or as we would put it, having the spoils. Now we'd throw Jeremiah in there too because of God's treatment of him, but Ebed-Melech, he's the one guy that God says to you, go the spoils of war. God reiterated to him that the Babylonian invasion was his doing. It was God's way of bringing the Israelites to their spiritual senses. No matter how pervasive the Babylonian victory might seem, this was God's triumph. Through it, he would spare his people and prepare the way of the Lord. The material prosperity of Babylon would be short-lived. Just like the Assyrians before them and the Medes and Persians after them, the Babylonians were a blip in the history of nations on the way to bringing the Savior of the world to die on the cross to gain the ultimate victory for mankind. You read the book of Daniel, for example, and you find that God proves this point to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, this conqueror, one day he's walking on the walls of Babylon, these huge, high, wide walls, and he starts musing in his heart, having pride, thinking of all that he has built, and God says, yeah, right. He says, you're, you're gonna wander like a beast for the next seven years, live out in the woods, and he does. It seems that Daniel maybe even runs the kingdom for him, and you know, Nebuchadnezzar is out you know, eating bark, and some kind of what we would call mental illness. And he comes to his senses at the appointed time, and he comes to Christ. He gets saved. And that chapter reads like a tract that he sends out of his testimony about how great is the God of Abraham. It's fantastic. And so anybody who thinks that Babylon has this victory doesn't know history. It was very short-lived. Read the New Testament with an emphasis on what constitutes spiritual victory and you find God's sense of victory involves things like being poor in spirit. It involves mourning, it involves meekness and being merciful 
all the while you're being persecuted for his sake. Now, his spiritual victories, they can involve things like subduing kingdoms and stopping the mouths of lions and quenching the violence of fire, escaping the edge of the sword, turning to flight armies. Or his victories can involve being tortured, trials of mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment, being stoned or sawn in two or slain with a sword. It can mean wandering about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. I got all of that language from Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, where God says victory can be here in this column or it can be here in this column. It doesn't really matter. It's all victory. The Bible declares that in all things we are more than conquerors, Romans 8, 37. What things is he talking about? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, accounted as sheep for slaughter. Our victory isn't that we avoid those things, but that we endure them for the sake of Jesus Christ. Examples are always helpful, and my absolute favorite example and explanation of what constitutes real spiritual victory, I use it all the time, you're very familiar with it, comes from the mouths of Daniel's three friends, as King Nebuchadnezzar is threatening to throw them into a fiery furnace because they refuse to bow to his idol. We pick up the story in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, meaning they're just not afraid of him. Doesn't mean they're being rude, they're being respectful. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we've given you our answer. We're not gonna give you another one. We're not afraid of you. If that is the case, meaning if you throw us into the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now for a while there, these guys sound like great, positive confessors, they, they, they're speaking truth, you know. God will deliver us. And then they say, but if he doesn't, that doesn't matter. And so you can throw us in the furnace, in fact, you're going to, we're pretty sure you're gonna throw us in this furnace. In fact, he's gonna heat it up seven times hotter than it ever been heated before. It's gonna exceed the manufacturer's specs. I mean, he's just gonna go for it. They said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're gonna throw us in the furnace. We don't have anything else to say to you. We've said it all. And you know what's gonna happen? One of two things are gonna happen. Either God's gonna deliver us from it or we're gonna die in it. And either way, we don't care. There's nothing you can do to us. We are the victorious people in this situation. We've conquered you because we know the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, you know the story. He throws them in. His guys that throw them in get burned to death outside the furnace, it's so hot. And then he looks in, he sees three guys walking around in the furnace, and he says, I see a fourth. There's a fourth person in there. Didn't we throw three guys in there? What's going on? So the fourth person looks like the son of God, and it was, it was Jesus, hanging out with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, how you guys doing? Pretty hot in here? No. It's like Jesus air conditioning or something. You know, it's crazy. They come out, they don't even smell like smoke. But the important thing, this is in a nutshell. If you're trying to understand or wrap your head around what we're saying this morning, what this chapter is teaching, this is it. You can throw us in the furnace. It doesn't matter to us. We're either gonna burn in there or be delivered from there. Either way, we are already more than conquerors 
in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter. More than conquerors know it doesn't matter which way things go, life or death, because the victory is in trusting God, it's in obeying God. These three boys were spared, but many after them throughout history who were every bit as victorious were killed. Our victory is at the cross. It is in dying to self in order to serve the Lord. It is not about anything in the material world. It's not about gaining or getting or looking like we have the upper hand in the situation. We may sometimes get that kind of victory. There are times we subdue kingdoms and stop the mouths of lions. Daniel experienced stopping the mouths of lions, but a lot of Christians in the first century experienced being eaten by lions. They were equally victorious. We have much in the way of spiritual spoils. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places are already ours to draw from. Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can effortlessly produce the fruit of the Spirit. Why don't we always act and react spiritually? Well, obviously the primary reason is that we're still in bodies of flesh. And and we struggle with the um, habits and, and drives of our old flesh. But at least one other reason we don't act and react spiritually, it might be that we forget God's strange but wonderful sense of what constitutes real victory. We find ourselves in a situation, a trial, uh, an adversity, an affliction, and our natural sense of victory is to be healed, it's to be delivered, it's to be removed from it, It's to get what we need in order to look like everything is fine. It is to have a kind of victory that the world would say, well, yeah, that's a victory. It's rarely the resolve to say, Lord, whichever way you wanna go with this, I'm already victorious. And so when I stay sick, when the money doesn't come, when I don't get the promotion, when I get fired, et cetera, et cetera, I have a tendency to feel defeated. And everybody thinks I'm defeated and sometimes Christians think I'm defeated. They wonder what's wrong in my life. Christians have still a terrible sense that God prospers obedience and that he withholds things from you if you're disobedient. At the same time, we look at the wicked and we think God prospers them, right? We're we're so crazy as Christians. We look at wicked people, oh, God's prospering the wicked. They don't get sick. They get all kinds of money. Why would he prosper the wicked? But if you're a Christian and you're not prospering, well, you must be wicked. We have to get all of that out of our minds because for every Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a bunch of Christians that burned and they were all just as victorious. And our problem, as I mentioned earlier, this is the whole situation in a nutshell. You don't know what chapter you're in. You know, you look at the books of the Bible and you think, wow, you know, I like Philemon, one chapter. I'm knocking off these one chapter books, you know, left and right. Wow, really, this book has 50 chapters? It's gonna take a while to get through my devotions. And, And your life, you don't know how many chapters you have in your life and you don't know where you are in the book of your life. And that's gonna be a problem uh, because there are gonna be times when you are just absolutely, from a Babylonian point of view, you're defeated. It's over. Other people are sitting in the gates, um, you know, that kind of a thing. All I can tell you is that you have to wait for chapter 39 because God said he 
began a good work in you and he would do what? He'll perform it. Absolutely until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't want to have to be the one to tell you this. Your chapter 39 may not come until eternity, but it's coming because you'll stand before Jesus Christ one day and he'll look at you and he'll say, hey, well done. You endure to the end. And so let's go the distance and remain standing at the final trumpet, at the final judgment, knowing that we are right now in every situation more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. Let's pray.